Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at church. This is a, a great passage. I think it reminds us of the value of making sure you get along to your gospel teams because there's so much that is rich about this particular chapter and we can't cover it, cover it all in, in one sermon. Uh, so make sure you get along there on Wednesday night so you can really dig into the riches uh, that are in uh, God's Word, particularly in this chapter. But let me pray that God will help us to get the big picture of what Jesus is praying and saying here. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray this evening that you will help us to see the riches that are in your word. And we ask, Father, that as we hear this great prayer of your Son, uh, that we would be shaped by that prayer to live more for you in all that we do. And this we ask for the sake of your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, like I just said, John chapter 17, it's one of those great chapters of the Bible because we get this insight into how Jesus prayed. And if you know your Gospels, if you read your Gospels, you'll see that constantly there's this kind of short line that says, Jesus withdrew himself to pray, which in itself I think is pretty amazing. You see, if ever there was a, a person who existed who could depend in themselves and could say of themselves, look, I don't need to pray in dependence to God, well, surely that person would have to be the God-man Jesus. But what was natural to the very nature of the Son was praying to his Father. And in John chapter 17, we get this real insight into what that looked like. And like Evans already said, what makes his prayer even more amazing is that Jesus prays for us. See, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus prayed this prayer, he had you and I here and now in mind as he prayed. I think that's incredible. So this, this makes this chapter one of those beautiful chapters of the Bible. And as we look at this prayer, at the heart of Jesus' prayer is the glory of God. Uh, that's the key to this passage. That's the key to this prayer. For all that Jesus says in chapter 17, for all the words which can seem a little bit wordy at times and, and seems a bit hard to follow, it's all about the glory of God. Which in lots of ways isn't too much of a surprise because if you remember in John chapter 12, what did Jesus already pray? He prayed there, Father, glorify your name. That's already been his prayer. And his prayer of Jesus will encourage us in at least two ways. For one, we will see that we are caught up in that glory of God. We, we are very much a part of God's plan to his glory, that we are actually saved to glorify God. But secondly, we will be encouraged to pray like Jesus prayed. You see, it's a great privilege to bring our requests to God and to call Him our Father and to bring all things to Him. And Jesus has already said a few times in the last couple of chapters, He said, ask whatever you want to the Father in my name and it will be done. That's Jesus' promise to us. But to ask in Jesus' name is to ask like Jesus asks. And what does Jesus pray for above all else? He prays for God to be glorified. That's His prayer. And again, we are, we are so privileged to bring our felt needs and the felt needs of others to our God, be it our health, our safety, our stresses, our worries, our burdens, our, our hopes, whatever it might be. They're all good things we can pray to our God and bring to Him. But here, Jesus will remind us that as we pray, whenever we pray and whatever we pray, first and foremost should be the glory of God in our minds. All that we pray should be shaped by firstly and foremost wanting God to be glorified. 
That's actually how we pray in Jesus' name. But before we dive into the detail, let me remind you of the scene. So uh, for the last few weeks, or since the beginning of the term, we've been watching this intimate moment between Jesus and his 11 disciples. There were 12 at first. Uh, Remember Judas, he's left. He's not on the scene anymore. There's Jesus and the 11 disciples. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples what it will be like now that he's going. So remember, Jesus is going back to the Father. He's going back to heaven to be with the Father. And he won't be physically with the disciples anymore. So he's been teaching them what that will be like. And the beginning of John chapter 17, it marks the end of that teaching. Uh, that, That teaching that Jesus has been doing to his disciples about his departure is now at an end. So chapter 17, verse 1, have a look. Make sure you've got your Bible there. Chapter 17, verse 1. See, it was after Jesus had spoken these things, spoken all that he taught them about his going, that he then looked up to heaven and prayed. And it's kind of like when you catch up with an older or wiser brother or sister in Christ, and they instruct you on how to live the Christian life. They encourage you by God's word and by his instruction. And then they say to you, well, let's pray. How about I pray for you now? That's kind of what Jesus has been doing here. He's taught his disciples and now he prays and he prays for them. But the other important bit of background before we start is the hour. So just look again at verse 1. See, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. And that's what brings about his prayer. And by now, we know the hour. We've been in John since the beginning of the term. We know the hour, the, the first 11 chapters of the book, the the constant refrain, if you remember from last year, was the hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour has not yet come. And then John chapter 12, where we started this term, finally Jesus declares the hour is here. The hour has finally come. And we know what the hour is, or at least I hope you remember by now what the hour is. It's the hour of Jesus' death. See, that's the hour. That's the hour we've been moving towards and building up towards. It's that time when Jesus would be on the cross and die for the sins of the world. But this is what we might not realize. And this is the key to the beginning of Jesus' prayer. See, the hour of Jesus' death is also the hour of his glory. Which is a little bit odd when you think about it. Because how can Jesus' death be glorious? You see, we might say that, you know, her silky flowing hair is to her glory. Uh, We might say that his football field, his his skills on the football field are glorious to watch. I say it every Saturday when I watch Askin play soccer. Uh, Just uh, last week, actually, my wife and I, Emily, we had one of those rare opportunities and one of those glorious days where you guys, a lot of you guys aren't at this stage of life yet, but let me point to the future for some of you. Uh, we had the glorious day where we dropped our kids off at the, uh, at the in-laws place and we went down the coast and we had a lunch together with no kids. That's a big deal for people at my stage of life. And it was beautiful. We're down at Ostermere, there was the kind of blue ocean, the surf on the right-hand side as we sat at this uh, cafe to have lunch. And on the left-hand side was kind of the mountains of Bulleye, the green mountains. And it's beautiful. And you look there and you go, there is the glory of creation. Uh, but I think for us, without kids that day, even McDonald's would have been glorious. But that, that's what we think of when we think of glory. We, we think of those kinds of things, these glorious, beautiful things. And yet Jesus prays, look again at verse 1. Jesus prays, Father, 
the hour has come, that is the hour of my death has come, now glorify your son. Take me to my death. Take me to that hour where I will be beat and rejected and spat on and thrust upon a wooden cross where nails will be driven through my hands and my feet and where I will suffocate as I hang on that cross. And Jesus says, Father, there is glory. There is your son being glorified. You see, how can that be glorious? And look at the end of verse 1. You see, it's not only the son, end of verse 1, that is glorified on the cross, but also the father. Jesus says, Father, glorify your son. Why? So that the son may glorify you. And again, how can that be glorious? See, where is the glory of God in the execution of his innocent son? Well, for one, the cross is where we see the extent of God's love for us, isn't it? See, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Well, Jesus spoke about love to his disciples in chapter 15. He said, no one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And sometimes we get a little confused about what we mean by that phrase, the glory of God. Uh, we, we talk about it all the time, you know, do things to God's glory. God, be praised and uh, do things. Uh, there's one guy who, um, one kind of well-known pastor who says, you need to drink orange juice to the glory of God. You know, what does that mean? You see, God's glory is God's godness. God's glory, it's his character. It's who he is. And at the cross, we see the character of God. We see on the cross the extent of his love for us, that even though you and I deserve death and punishment for our sin, well, the God of all creation came down in the person of Jesus the Son to die for that sin. And why did he do that? Because he loved us. You see, he didn't have to. God didn't need to do that. God could rightly have let us die in our sin. But no, God's plan from the very beginning, before creation itself, was that Jesus the Son would die for the sins of the world. And in that act on the cross, as Jesus did that for us, we see the glory of God. We, we see His character. We see what our God is like. He's utterly amazing and He is a loving God. But it's not simply the love of God that makes the cross glorious. The cross actually achieves something. You see, the cross of Jesus is how we come to know God. And I use uh, this illustration all the time, and I can't remember if I've used it here already, so my apologies if I have, but it's worth hearing again. But you see, I could say to my kids, I could say, let me show you how much I love you, my dear children. Let me show you how great my love is and the extent of my love for you. Let me show you by jumping in front of that speeding train. Now, that's a bit silly. It's a bit morbid. But that kind of love, it, it doesn't actually achieve very much, does it? See, my kids might now know the extent of my love for them, how much I love them now that I've gone and died for them. But I'm not much good if I'm not around. I'm pretty sure my kids would rather have me alive, though it depends what day you ask them. But you see, God didn't send His Son to die simply to show us His love. We do see the love of God on the cross, but no, Jesus' death actually achieves something. Just look at verse 2. Have a look at what Jesus says. Verse 2, he says, For you, God the Father, 
gave him, God the Son, authority over all flesh. Why? So he, God the Son, may give eternal life to all you have given him. You see, that's what Jesus achieves in dying on the cross. He achieves eternal life for us, for those who believe in him. And when we think of eternal life, we, we usually think of a place. So if I say, you know, what is eternal life? Most people think of heaven. Or we, we think in materialistic terms. So we think of, we'll get new resurrected bodies, which, uh, which sounds pretty good to me, particularly the day after soccer. And that's right to an extent, but that's not what Jesus means here. Just have a look at verse 3. It's actually, I think, the key to this whole prayer. You see, what is eternal life? This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And so eternal life here, it's not a place. It's not a thing. But it's a relationship. It's knowing God and Jesus, the Christ, whom he sent. And if I can put the pieces together uh, from the first part of Jesus' prayer here, this is why the cross of Jesus is so amazing and so glorious. This is why Jesus links the hour of his death and the glory of God because it's only in Jesus' death that we can ever know God and be part of the family of God. You see, without the cross of Jesus, sinful people like you and me, we have no right to be part of God's family. We don't know him as father and we have no right to enter his house. We are of different families. God is perfect and holy and sinless and well, we, we are sinful and wicked and guilty. We have nothing to do with each other. I mean, just imagine driving up to some random house and just inviting yourself in for the family dinner. Just kind of driving up to some house and knocking on the door and saying, hey, I'm here for the family dinner. If you're crazy enough to do it, you may as well make it interesting. Just imagine driving to Point Piper or Bellevue Hill. They're, they're kind of the richest suburbs in Sydney on, on the Sydney Harbour. And just imagine going to those suburbs and finding the most beautiful house you can, you can pick out and just inviting yourself in for the family meal. You know, lamb cutlets and uh, you know, some fancy bottle of French red and a panoramic view of, of the harbour. It sounds brilliant. But keep imagining, because if you did that, they'd think you're crazy. You have no right to enter that house. You have no right to be part of their family. You can't just waltz into that house. Unless you've got family in Point Piper, then, well, good for you. But here's the thing. In Jesus' death on the cross, he has washed us of our sin, and he's cleansed us of our guilt, and he's opened up the way for us to know God, to know him as Father. It's John chapter 14. Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us so that we might enter the Father's house as his children. See, do you remember what John said right at the beginning of his gospel? It's up on the screen. He said this. He said, But to all who did receive him, that is, who received Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. You see, that's the work that Jesus came to do, to make God known, to give the right for those who believe in his name to be children of God and to call God Father. And what do the children of God now do as those who know him and have been saved by the death of Jesus and know his love for them? What do we do? We glorify God. We, we praise God as God for saving us. 
You see, that's why the cross is so glorious, because we see that love of God. And because of the cross, the way he's been opened up for us to know God as Father, and we give him praise, we give him glory, we honor his name for who he is. And at this point, there is no to-do list for us. There's no application that I want you to go home and implement and do in light of what we've just learned. And the take-home for us at this point, it's just to be in awe of our God. It's just to praise God that the night before Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus had the glory of God in mind. And because he had the glory of God in mind, he prayed that God would take him to that hour and that he would die for your sins and mine. So that we might then know God as Father. So that then we might rightly praise God as God for what he has done for us. And can I say, if Jesus is not yet your Lord and Saviour, So the right thing for you to do in light of who this God is, is to stop living life for yourself and turn to Jesus and make him your Lord and Savior and praise God as God. That's the right response to who our God is. But much more quickly now, what Jesus does next is he prays for his 11 disciples. And he starts off by praying about them to the Father. And what Jesus says here is he starts off praying specifically for the 11. He says that they're legitimate followers. He makes the point that they are children of God. They know God as Father. They truly follow Jesus. So Jesus says to the Father, verse 6, he says this about the 11, verse 6. He says, Father, they have kept your word. And verse 7, he prays and he says to his Father, they know that all things are from you. And verse 8, he says of them, they believe that you sent me. And because the 11 are true followers and legitimate children of God the Father, well, Jesus prays that the Father would protect them. So have a look at the second half of verse 11. The second half of verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, protect them, the 11, by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. And at one level, that's, that's a great prayer for Jesus to pray about any of his followers. But it's even more important for the 11 disciples. Why? Because in God's sovereign plan of salvation, the future of God's church rests on them. See, Jesus is going back to be with the Father. He won't be physically there anymore. The spreading of the message of forgiveness of sins in Jesus begins with the 11 disciples. And did you notice why Jesus prays that the Father would protect him? Just have a look again at verse 11. You see, why does he pray this for them? It is so that the 11 disciples may be one as the Father and Son are one. And again, this is really important for the 11. They need to be one. They need to be united as those who will go on to establish the church. And this isn't Jesus praying for some kind of fake unity. This isn't, you know, kind of be united for the sake of unity's sake. Uh, It's not go off and be, you know, the local ukulele club of the first century. No, this is a unity in the truth of God. That's the unity that Jesus is praying for. This is to be united in the word as the father and the son are united in their word. And we won't have time to do this, but if you read through that section of Jesus' prayer as he prays specifically for the 11, what comes up again and again is the fact that Jesus has given them the Father's word. 
See, that's the unity that they're, they're to be united in. They're to be one in that word. And I, uh, I hate to relate the things of God to some mafia movie, but just think of those typical American-Italian mafia movies. Let me paint a picture, or one of those kind of CSI kind of movies. Uh, you know when like, there's, you know, there's, a, there's the mafia and they're the bad guys, and there's this one person who sees this mafia man kill this really important person. And this person saw that happen, and they know the truth. They're an eyewitness. And so there's this big case that kind of comes up and, you know, they, they want to pin the mafia for this killing that they've done. And this one person knows the truth. They saw it happen. They know what actually happened. And so what the mafia do is they want to kill this guy because if you kill him, well, then the truth dies with that person. And so what the police do is then they try to protect this person. They put him in eyewitness care and all that kind of stuff. Why? They protect them so that the truth can be preserved. So that person can proclaim and declare the truth of what actually is and what happened. Well, it's kind of like that. In lots of ways, it's nothing like a mafia movie. But, but the 11, they have the truth, okay? The, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, they saw Jesus die on the cross. The 11 see him raised from the dead. The 11 have been with Jesus from the beginning and have seen him do all the miracles he has done. And so they need to proclaim that truth. And if they are to make that truth known, well, then Jesus wants the Father to protect them, to keep them safe, so they can make God's word known. And Jesus knows it won't be easy for these 11 disciples. So he prays, verse 14, have a look. He prays this for them, verse 14. He says, I have given them, the 11, your word, and the world hated them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. And I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, Jesus said. He's not praying that that they be removed from the world because they need to witness to the world. But he's praying that the Father would protect them. Protect them from the evil one. You see, it might not be the, the Italian mafia that would be after them. But the world will hate them. And the devil himself is opposed to all things Jesus and he will hate them. And we know this about the message of the cross, don't we? You see, the message of the cross, it offends people. It tells them that they are sinful and that they actually need a saviour. It tells them that there is no other way to be saved except through the blood of Jesus. That actually judgment is coming. And many in our world, they hate that. And Jesus already told us back in John chapter 3, the world hates that message. Why? Because people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And as the 11 disciples go out and they proclaim that message to the world around them, the world hated them. See, they're not of the world. They're of a different family. And almost all of the 11, almost all of them were killed for proclaiming that message to the world around them. Which would remind us that when people respond in hate to the message of the gospel, the problem doesn't lie with the message. And the problem doesn't lie with Jesus when people hate him. And the problem doesn't lie with us when people hate us for proclaiming that message. That when people reject the gospel, it's because they prefer sin. It's because they prefer to live in rebellion to God. Never think the problem lies with the message of the gospel. Now, the gospel is the power of salvation and it is good. But again, at this point, we might be thinking, well, how is that glorious? You see, I've, I've called point two here, the 11 disciples and the glory of God. But, but where is the glory of God in that? 
Where is the glory? But have a look at verse 18. See, verse 18, Jesus says, Just as you, the Father, have sent me into the world, I, the Son, have sent them, the eleven, into the world. And why did the Father send Jesus, the Son, into the world? It was to make God known. It was to reveal the glory of God in the world and most fully at the cross. And why does Jesus now send the eleven, his eleven disciples, out into the world? Why does he do that? It's so that they might make God known. To proclaim the glory of God to the world and most fully the message of the cross to the world. You see, that's why verse 17, if you have a look at verse 17, that's why the eleven have been sanctified by the word. And the word sanctified there just means set apart. They've been set apart by the truth of the gospel word. Why? To go into the world and make God known. And as you read the book of Acts, and as you see these 11 disciples go out into the world with that gospel and make God known, it's glorious. See, if ever you doubt the gospel of the Lord Jesus, go again and read the book of Acts and see what God's message does in the world. You see, in the book of Acts, we see people from all nations, starting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, who were destined for eternal hell, turn and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And they are saved. And those people who once worshipped and glorified some pagan god and gave glory and praise to some pagan false god who was no god at all, they now turn and they rightly glorify the god of the whole universe. The one who is truly God and deserves honour and praise and glory. And here's the thing. As Jesus prayed for the eleven and prayed for them as they went out and shared that message with the world, Jesus had no doubt that people would believe that message. See, he had no doubt that when the eleven went out with the truth of the gospel and declared his death and resurrection, that people would believe. So just have a look at verse 20. In verse 20, it's one of those amazing verses. Jesus says, I pray not only for these, for the eleven but also for those who believe in me through their message. See, Jesus had no doubt that people would believe. And brothers and sisters, as Jesus says that, that is us. See, that is us. That, that is us. We, we are those who have believed through that message of the disciples. And not only us, but the millions and literally billions who have called Jesus their Lord and Savior over the last 2,000 years. You see, never believe the lie that says that Christianity is dead and irrelevant. That is a lie of the devil. All the way back in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that his offspring would be like the immeasurable sands, uh, grains of sand on the seashore. And he said to Abraham that his offspring would be like the number of stars, the innumerable stars in the sky. You wouldn't be able to count his offspring. That's how many would be saved and be part of the family of God. And God keeps his promise. That is what God is doing. And if that wasn't encouraging enough, well, how encouraging is it that Jesus now prays for us? You see, third and final point, us in the glory of God. And I don't know about you, but one of the most encouraging things in a Christian life is having people pray for you. 
Uh, particularly encouraging for me is having someone I shared the gospel with pray for me. I think of a particular brother who I shared Jesus with uh, seven years ago or so. And every now and then he sends me a message and tells me that he's praying for me. So that's hugely, uh, incredibly encouraging. But even more incredible is that Jesus here actually prayed for that brother. He prayed that he would come to believe the message of the disciples, the word of God. And Jesus here, incredibly, he prays for you. And he prays for me. And look at what Jesus prays for us. Have a look at verse 21. Jesus prays like he prayed for the 11. He prays that we may all be one as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And again, like the 11, that is a prayer for unity. That is a prayer that we might be united as one. And again, just like before, this is not a prayer that we'd be united for the sake of being united. This is not, you know, be united as a social group and, and have fun as, as the kind of ukulele club of St. George North. Uh, it's not even a prayer that all the different Christian groups around the world and all the different denominations would come together or all the religions of the world would come together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. That's not what Jesus is praying here. No, it's a prayer to be united in the truth of God's word. See, that's actually what brings us together. It's when we know the truth of God and know Jesus, his son, that we are then united because we have the common father in heaven. That's what Jesus is praying for here. But have a look at why Jesus prays this for us. You see, it's for a purpose. Look at the end of verse 21. See, Jesus prays that we might be one so that the world may believe the father sent the son. So that the world may believe that the Father sent Jesus. You see, even in being united in that truth of the gospel together, the end goal is not our unity. The end goal is that we might make God known. And so do you see how we are caught up in that glory of God? We are, as God's people, we are to show God's glory to the world. The world needs to look at us and say, they're different. The world needs to look at us and see that we belong to God. And they need to ask, what makes them so different? See, if you are here uh, tonight for one of the first times, or if Jesus is not yet your Lord and Savior, I hope you see that we are different. I hope you see that we love each other in a way that other communities, as diverse as ours, doesn't. I remember when I first started attending a church, I was about 17 or so. I wasn't a Christian at the time. Uh, a friend invited me along and I was a you know, tall, lanky, skinny kid, even skinnier and lanky than I am now. And, and I only knew one person at this church. So it was a bit weird at first when I first turned up. But what struck me more than anything else was that the people there loved each other. They were different. They were diverse. They were of different ages from different backgrounds. And yet they, they cared for each other genuinely. And they cared for me, even though I was just kind of coming in from the outside. And part of the reason why I stayed at that church, and part of the reason why I went on to actually hear the gospel and hear the message of the Lord Jesus and become a Christian was because of those people. Because they were showing forth God's glory into the world. And it's not only as we gather on Sundays, but it's actually... Wherever we are, we are witnesses of Jesus into our world, in our schools, in our universities, in our workplaces, in our home, in our sporting teams, whatever it might be. 
And here's the point I really, really want us to get tonight. You see, what Jesus pray, prays here, what he prays for is not primarily about us. It's about the glory of God. And what Jesus is concerned with above all else is that God might be rightly praised and glorified as God. And really, this must shape our prayers. We should pray each and every day, first thing when we wake up, that above all, above all else, God be glorified through us. And notice that when Jesus prayed this for himself, this wasn't some cheap and easy prayer for Jesus to pray. See, when Jesus said, Father, glorify your Son, so your Son may glorify you, what was he asking God to do? Take him to his death. Take him to the cross. It's not some cheap and easy prayer. And when we pray, God, above or above all else, glorify yourself through me, that will bring some costs. For some of us, that will bring huge costs. And it will be hard. But let me finish now by encouraging us with Jesus' words in verse 24. And we won't have the time to look at this in detail, so make sure you, you read it again and look at it in Gospel Teams on Wednesday. But know that Jesus prayed for your salvation. And know that Jesus prayed that you and I might be kept by the Father to the very end so that we might see Jesus face to face. Look at verse 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am, that is to be with him at the end. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged that the night before Jesus died, he prayed that the Father might keep us to the end so that we might see his glory. And that Jesus' prayer here encourage you to pray and to live for God's glory, just like Jesus did. How about I pray that now? Well, Heavenly Father, we give you great praise that in Jesus glorifying himself and glorifying your name, that we are saved because of who you are. And Father, we ask that we might be people who pray like Jesus, that we pray above all else, that we glorify you in all that we do. And we ask that you strengthen us to do that by your spirit, for the sake of your name, to the glory of your son. And this we ask in his name. Amen.